Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. Now we're going to cover a lot of territory uh, this morning yet again, 2 Kings chapters 8, 9 and 10 and, and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to look on, in on a catastrophic marriage choice. Uh, we're going to look at Jehu and his bloody reign and we're also going to finish with solid hope. That, that's where we're headed, a, a catastrophic marriage choice, Jehu, Tarantino's muse and we're going to finish with solid hope. Okay, so firstly, catastrophic marriage choice. Uh, my hip replacement was an all doom and gloom. Doom and gloom. Uh, I, was, I watched a great little mini-series, All the Light We Cannot See. Uh, it's a, a four-part TV series that's based on a novel by the same name, written in 2014 by Anthony Doer. It's the backdrop to the series is world, a World War II battle of St. Malo? I'm an Aussie. It's probably Malo, a French. I don't know how to pronounce it. World War II battle. All the light we cannot see is based on a battle. Don't worry if you haven't seen it. That wasn't a spoiler alert. You would have seen that in a, um, a trailer. And as I was watching the series, I couldn't help but reflect on what we're seeing on the news night by night with the bombs going off uh, in Gaza and Israel. Now, with that setting, listen to the title again. All the light we cannot see. In the midst of the brutality and the ugliness of war, is there a light we cannot see? Can light break into that darkness? It's a captivating series. I recommend it. Now, who's been captivated by a one and two king series. Yeah, nah. <laughs> okay, there's a couple. It's hard work, isn't it? I mean, there are so many names for starters. Most of us, if not all of us, there's probably, I know there's one or two out there, you'll be able to remember them all. I won't. It's hard work. For instance, we can see that we know that uh, God's people are split into two kingdoms by this stage. Um, there's the northern kingdom, and that's called Israel. And then there's this southern kingdom, and that's called Judah. And it's the southern kingdom, the smaller part, um, that actually carries the lineage of David and therefore the promises of God. And because it, Judah carries the promises of God, it's sometimes called Israel. We're in the Old Testament, and, and this is hard work, isn't it? Um, working through one and two kings is hard, but there is a captivating story woven right through it. One and two kings is the story of bad choices that lead to increasingly devastating outcomes for God's people. One and two kings, it spirals, spirals deeper and deeper into human depravity, which begs the question, can light burst into that darkness? Today, we're going to dive deep into the darkness. But don't panic. Remember I said we're finishing with solid hope. Uh, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings 8, 
And we're going to read from verse 16. Uh, and the other thing I'm going to try and do, uh, you can hold me accountable if I miss one. Remember in the Old Testament, often Lord is all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I'm going to try and remember to say Yahweh. Instead of the Lord, I'm going to try and remember to say Yahweh because that's what the capital letters are signifying. God's special name. God's name who is I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I'm big, I'm huge. Don't try and box me in. Yahweh. Let's go. Chapter 8, verse 16. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, the king of Israel. So remember Ahab was that really bad king, wasn't he? He's the king of Israel. Now Joram is his son who replaced him. Then when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. So Jehoshaphat in the south dies and his son Jehoram starts to take over. He was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, that's the southern kingdom, and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and the house of Ahab, as the house of Ahab had done for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. Um, sorry, I've lost my place. Um, yep. Uh, this, that, that is one of the most confusing parts of 1 and 2 Kings. As we just read through all those names, I needed to slow down and just remember where we're up to. I mean, first of all, Jehoram in the south sounds an awful like Jehoram in the north. And even when you get down to verse 23 and 24, Jehoram is called Jehoram. So we've got two kings in two different places called the same thing. And later on, as we see some of their descendants, um, they're going to have exactly the same name. Ahaziah was a king in the north and in the south, two separate kings. Told you this is hard work. If you're not following, here it is in a nutshell. We're looking at the divided kingdom of God's people at a time where their respective kings either had similar sounding names or exactly the same name. What's going on? They just did that lack of imagination. Did the author get it wrong? Did, did he muck them up? No, our answer is actually in verse 18. And this king in the south, Jehoram, walked in the way of the kings of Israel, of the north, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. If we are caught up in the drama of one and two kings, we would be screaming, Je Jehoram, you stupid man. What were you thinking? Didn't you watch what was going up in the north under Ahab? Why are you following him? Well, we see why. Verse 18, for uh, the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What a catastrophic marriage choice. Jehoram was a fool. The evil, pagan, child-worshipping Ahab in the north, his influence began to infect the south because of a catastrophic marriage choice. That's 2 Kings chapter 8. 
King Jehoram's catastrophic marriage choice. Let's turn now to be looking at Jehu Tarantino's muse. Now, if you haven't heard of Quentin Tarantino, that's probably a good thing. He's a Hollywood director uh, known for his bloodthirsty movie backdrops. Chapters 9 and 10 in uh, Two Kings are the longest narrative about one person in Two Kings, uh, and they cover a bloodthirsty reign of Jehu. Jehu spills so much blood, he'd make an excellent muse for any Hollywood uh, violent movie maker. So with that introduction, we're about to meet him. Now, we're going to read all of chapter 9. It's going to take a while, seven minutes when I was doing it at home. But I want us to get caught up in what is actually going on here. And so a little word of warning. If you're more of a Pride and Prejudice fan, this is going to make you squeamish. If you're more of a John Wick fan, however, you're going to be cool. I can get rid of Netflix. I've got one and two kings. You need to follow. 37 verses. All right? Follow along. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, remember Elisha, major key prophet in the Old Testament, is now talking to a son of a prophet. So, so like a prophet apprentice, yeah? Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says Yahweh, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So the young man, this little apprentice, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of Yahweh. This isn't the son of a king. This is a captain of an army, and he's special anointed to become a king. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of the servants of Yahweh. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Bashar, the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. And so if we're following the narrative, one and two kings, little things are going off. Oh, yeah, God's already promised that, hasn't he? We're now seeing how God is going to bring this about through Jehu. Now, when Jehu came out of the servants, I forgot where I left off. It was 11? Yeah, cool. Now, when Jehu came out of the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And Jehu said to them, you know the fellow and his talk. And they said, that is not true. Tell us now. Come on, Jehu. There's oil all through your hair. What happened? Tell us. And Jehu said, thus and so he spoke to me, saying, thus says Yahweh, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. 
Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram, the king of Israel. Now Joram with all Israel had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, the king of Syria. But King Joram had returned and healed in Jezreel at the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. Go home, read right through chapter 8. You'll see what happened there. So Jehu said, if this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city and go and tell the news in Jezreel. Look, I'm king. You want me to be king? Let's keep this hush-hush. We're going to do something to Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel. So here's the setting where Joram is in the northern kingdom. And he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horseman and send to meet him and let him say, is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger reached them, but he's not coming back. Then Joram the king sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again the watchman reported, He reached them, but is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Right, so you've got this king. Uh, watchman saying, hey, someone's coming. And he's coming with a bit of a band. Um, so they send out someone. That someone doesn't come back. He actually joins the band. Sends out another one and doesn't come back. If you were king, would you start preparing for a battle? Well, let's see what Joram did. Joram said, make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah... Because they were together, again, read chapter 8. They set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Can you see the drama? You remember Naboth? Remember how Ahab had him killed just so he could get the vineyard? I told you this is exciting. It's not hard work. It's better than Hollywood. Uh, And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? Jehu answered, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how Yahweh made his pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares Yahweh, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of Yahweh. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagon and Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblim, and he fled to Megiddo and died there. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah, began to reign over Judah. Now, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, 
And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. Boy, Hollywood really should grab this script. And Jehu entered the gate, as Je- and as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window. Who is on my side? Who? <laughs> Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood splattered on the wall and the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than her skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. Brutal. And believe it or not, that is not even the Tarantino muse part. More happens in chapter 10. I wish I could keep reading, but we're going to have to summarize for the sake of time. Chapter 10 records a bloodbath that makes John Wick look like a character out of Pride and Prejudice. Jehu piled up 70 heads most of whom were children, at the gates and declared his zeal for the Lord. It's one thing to be on God's mission. It's another thing to pile up heads. Now, for you John Wick fans, don't worry, there is more. Jehu went on to slaughter another 42 descendants of Ahab and Jezebel. And then there's more. We're not actually sure how many. Chapter 10, verse 17 says, And Jehu knocked off the rest of Ahab and Jezebel's children. And you guessed it. There's even more bloodshed. At the end of chapter 10, Jehu makes sure that all the Baal prophets and priests are put into the temple. Read from chapter 10, verse 24 with me. Halfway through verse 24 the, the, priest, the Baal priests are all put into the Baal temple. Now Jehu has stationed 80 men outside and said, the man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering, the burn offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. And so when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Now the, the code name for that military operation was from temple to toilet. You can picture, can't you? Those soldiers that just finished slaughtering all their priests. We pee all over your pagan God. Here's the question, though, at the end of that long, bloodthirsty narrative. Was Jehu simply conducting what the Lord, what Yahweh had anointed him to do, or was he going off script? And the answer is yes. 
Jehu was anointed by Yahweh to knock off Ahab and Jezebel's descendants for all of their heinous sins. That, that was what Jehu was anointed to do. And Jehu went off script. Keep reading from chapter 10, verse 29. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And Yahweh said to Jehu, so remember this is the Lord speaking to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Remember that little verse for the next couple of weeks. Let's see if God's promise comes true. Will Jehu to the fourth generation be on the throne? But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of Yahweh, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. We, we want heroes, and some of us want to be a hero. And if that heroism is driven by a zeal for Yahweh, it's a good thing. Pray for heroes that will stand up for the Lord. Pray that we would be heroes for the Lord. And as we do, let's not forget, every hero is flawed. One of the lessons we're supposed to learn from Jehu is that we live in a dark world. October 7, as heinous, raw, and evil as it was, is yet another reminder that we live in a Gaza world. In our own country, I mean, let's bring it back home. We have domestic violence. We have the fallout from the referendum and the way we treat each other over voting differently. Have you, the cost of living. I, I know we, we all feel it, but surely it hurts the have-nots way more than the haves. Many of us know the darkness of living under the cloud of domestic violence, of family court for years, of, of being single again, of anxiety, of depression, of of estranged, dysfunctional, abusive relationships. Our world is broken. And here's the thing. Two kings and that long Jehu narrative is not simply telling us we all live in a Gaza world. It's telling us something more. God is telling us we're all capable of being Jehus. The longest consecutive narrative in two kings about one person is God teaching us about human sinfulness. Your sinfulness, my sinfulness. Because Jehu is a complex mixture of zeal for the Lord and deeply flawed. Just like you and I. Now, we don't mind thinking and talking about our zeal. But we don't like to think and talk about our own flawness and sinfulness. Here's three common ways you and I suppress 
the truth of our sinfulness. Firstly, arrogance. Call it self-righteousness, arrogance. We look at what's happening over in the Middle East. We look at people who voted differently to us on the referendum. We look at people who have got themselves into financial trouble and we go, yeah, look at them. I wouldn't be like that. I call it the reality TV syndrome. Reality TV is so popular because it puts up people in front of us that we can go, you idiot. Such arrogance suppresses our own flaws. We're quick to look at the speck in somebody else and don't want to talk about the log in ourselves. Second way we suppress truth is foolishness. Many of us are foolish when it comes to living in a Gaza world. We, we move through life without seeking biblical wisdom. Think about the uh, number of f- Christian friends you've got that over the years have come and asked you for advice after they've already stepped into the big decision. Like, who should I marry? Should I move? Should I get into overcapitalizing on this house or not? And then as you think about those friends... How many of those decisions have had catastrophic effects on their walk with the Lord? Many of us foolishly live in a Gaza world. We don't seek wisdom and counsel. And then thirdly, finally, many of us are simply naive. You know, the Christian uh, take on sticking your head in the sand is just to go, we're Christians. It's always going to be good. It's going to be okay. I've said my prayers. It's okay. Brothers and sisters, we live in a Gaza world. It is broken. You don't get any more Christian than Jesus. And he was beaten and mocked and tortured and murdered. You don't get any more Christian than the Apostle Paul. And he was beaten and mocked and tortured and murdered. I think I've taken us a deep, deep enough into the darkness. You, you're all saying, Steve, I wish you would have stayed away. <laughs> Not only have we been reminded that we live in a Gaza world, we, we've been reminded that we are all flawed. So let's turn to our final heading, Solid Hope. As dark as this world has ever been, there has always been light. Come, come back with me to 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. No, no, no. We've seen everything that's going on in the north. It's now in the south. No, no. The next verse. Yet, yet, Yahweh was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. 
Christians have solid hope on the promises of God. God always does what he says. He always delivers on his promise. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, Yahweh promised to David that David will have an heir on the throne forever. That was 150 years before Jehu. Yahweh promised a lamp, a light that will shine into the darkness forever. Line up all the Old Testament heroes, you know, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Deborah, David, Solomon, Jehu. Put them all on the table and they are all flawed. But there's one who's not. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the lamp. Jesus is the light that has come into the world and not only crushed darkness, he is also the light that shines into a believer's heart. Jesus is not only the mighty king who destroys all of God's enemies, Jesus is also the one who is gentle and lowly of heart and says to me, come and I will shine my light of eternal life into your life. So whether you are looking for a hero or wanting to be a hero, the starting place is surrendering everything to Jesus. Don't be arrogant. We need God's grace just as much as anybody else. And we need that grace every moment of every day. Don't be arrogant. And don't be foolish. Seek godly wisdom and counsel. Our choices can have devastating, catastrophic consequences. Seek wisdom. And don't be naive. We live in a dark world. And be with hope. Be with solid hope. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's the Word? He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In this Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. It smashes the darkness. The darkness cannot overcome him. Jesus wins. He's our king. Surrender all to him. Amen. 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 Almighty God. It's extraordinary to uh, read through history. I mean, all the way back thousands of years and see how you have always been in control. You are amazing. You are incredible. You are worthy of all our worship, our attention, our heart, our love, our service, our sacrifice. And we are sorry that we often fail. And so, Father, I... Pray for all of us. Would we bring all of our sin and bring it before you? We need forgiveness and we, thank, we, we, we pray for that forgiveness through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we also thank you for that forgiveness that you have made through the blood of Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
tune in next week for our latest sermon, or better yet, join us live at 9.30 or 5 p.m. Sunday. You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.org.au.